Hi, welcome to another episode of Theology Applied. I am Pastor Joel Webin with Right Response Ministries. Today, I was privileged to have as a special guest, Elisa Childers. She's done a lot of wonderful work in regards to taking a stand against progressive Christianity. However, in this particular episode, um, we discussed five common objections to the Christian faith. Five common objections to the Christian faith. Enjoy. Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. Hi, welcome to another episode of Theology Applied. I am Pastor Joel with Right Response Ministries. And as I've already mentioned, I'm privileged to have as a special guest, Elisa Childers. Elisa, would you just take a moment and introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. Hi, Joel. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I uh, currently run a apologetics podcast and blog, and I just wrote a book that chronicles my journey of encountering the ideas of progressive Christianity. And so the book sort of walks the reader through my story and then in, in how to answer progressive Christianity biblically along the way. And so that's what I'm doing these days. But in the past, I've been a musical recording artist with the CCM group, Zoe Girl. And most importantly, I'm a wife and a mom. And uh, that's, that's, my main, that's my main gig. And I love it. Amen. That's good. Um, okay, so this is going to be a little bit different. So I, I've uh, I've heard some of your talks. I think I heard you on Ali Bestucki uh, a few months back and uh, been blessed by your ministry and the things that you've done and the ways that you've spoken out against progressive Christianity. But as we were talking a little bit before we started recording this episode, um, I, I thought and you agreed that it would be nice to do something a little bit different, not not a entirely out of your wheelhouse, something that I noticed that you've done before and that I thought would be really beneficial for our listeners. So really, if there was a a main headline topic for this episode, it would be apologetics. And what we're going to do is kind of Uh, Maybe you could call it um, Apologetics 101, kind of a primer, a a basics course. And so what we're going to be hitting is not every nuance and every intricate detail of how to defend the Trinity, perhaps. But what we're going to do is um, what is your kind of your nine millimeter that you keep in Texas? You can uh, open carry now so that you keep on on your side uh, that you pull out for the most common occasion. So what are the most five most common objections to the Christian faith? the five most regular accusations or questions or or opposition that you receive and how could Christians respond? So I know that's a big question, but maybe we could just go one at a time. So so maybe to start with, what's the the most common objection that you've experienced, Elisa? I think the most common one would have to do with any objection that's going to sort of make a claim against the reliability of the Bible. And there's sort of two different uh, areas that that will happen. So sometimes people will claim that the New Testament in particular that you have sitting in your lap today or on your desk is not the same words that they wrote back in the first century. And so uh, often you'll hear people say things like, oh my goodness, there are so many, they'll use the word mistakes uh, in the manuscript, so we can't even possibly know what they wrote in the in the first century. So that, that would be one side of it. The other side of it would have to do with, okay, let's even say we do have an accurate copy. Well, those copies don't tell the truth about what happened in the first century. This was just some some legendary uh, things that sort of developed over time. The earliest 
Christians didn't really think Jesus was God. And, and so there's, there's a little bit of an attack on the reliability of the information and also an attack on the reliability of the actual uh, words themselves. And so I think, and I think that the reason that's one of the main objections is depending on where somebody's coming from, we, we hear so many stories of people walking away from their faith or having serious doubts about their faith. And almost always one of those pillars is the Bible, because if that pillar gets knocked down, it sort of leaves you adrift. Where do I look for, for truth? If my Bible isn't accurate and hasn't been telling me the truth, where do I go? So I think that that's probably the biggest one if I, if I had to guess, but there are some other really big ones too. Okay. So, so what are, what are some of the ways that you would respond to that objection? Well, let's let's take for example the the idea that the the manuscripts themselves have been corrupted. This is a topic that uh, early in my journey of I had a faith crisis of my own, and this was a huge part of my journey is is trying to learn why why do we believe that the words we have in our New Testament are the words that they originally wrote? Um, this this was a hugely unsettling question for me when I was trying to figure out what I believed about uh, this faith that I'd had my whole life, and so. What I discovered was that there, there's a science called textual criticism. And essentially, th this is a science that scholars use to reconstruct the wording of ancient documents when the original documents no longer exist. And so it's this isn't a, a science that's only used with the Bible. It's used with things like if you've ever read the Iliad or if you've ever read Shakespeare or uh, even the Gettysburg Address. Yeah, yeah yes. So, so textual critics are basically looking at the existing manuscripts and they're trying to figure out what the original wording was. And this is because back then, every manuscript was handwritten by a, a human being. So they didn't have printing presses or computers where they could print it out. So humans would copy the text and, and that's... Um, and so textual critics, to, to get a really good idea of what the original wording was, they want to have a lot of manuscripts, as many as possible. And then they want those manuscripts to come from as early or as close to the original as possible. And when they have a lot of manuscripts and then they have really early manuscripts together, that that is it, it elevates the level of accuracy. Now, the thing about the New Testament is the New Testament actually has more manuscripts and earlier manuscripts than any other work of ancient classical literature. In fact, to the point that it actually dwarfs uh, any other ancient literature. I think the closest one might be the Iliad. Uh, so, so with the New Testament, just the broad flyover, you've got over 5,000 manuscripts. And, and every manuscript isn't necessarily an entire book. Some of them are entire books. Some of them are maybe a single page. Some are even so small, they're just like a postage stamp with a few uh, words scribbled on there. So we have over 5,000 of those for the New Testament. And um, they, arguably the earliest one we have, it, it dates within uh, 30 to, to 100 years of the original, which is unprecedentedly early. In fact, before they discovered this fragment, a lot of the liberal scholarship um, had to be corrected because they thought the book of John, which is where this manuscript came from, was was much later. And so um, the, these early manuscripts and then a lot of manuscripts helped them to put these things together. Now, I think uh, the, the main thing we have to understand is you might hear skeptics say, okay, among these 5,000 manuscripts, there are tons of, they might say, mistakes. Um, we, we call them variations. So these are variations between the manuscripts. So you might have one manuscript that says Jesus Christ, and then another manuscript of the same text 
might say Christ Jesus, where the word order is switched. So that counts as a variant. So it's true. We, you know, we have anywhere, depends on which scholar you ask, anywhere from 350,000 to 500,000 of these variations between the manuscripts. But the most important thing for Christians to understand is that the vast majority of these variations, and even skeptical scholars like Bart Ehrman will, will agree with this, the vast majority of those uh, variations don't affect the meaning of the text at all. It's just, you know, if you have Christ Jesus in one and Jesus Christ in another, nobody's confused about what that's saying, right? So we know what it's Mm -hmm. saying. And, you know, admittedly, there is a very small percentage of variations where scholars aren't sure exactly what the original wording was. And in in those cases, you know, there's debate, and I've heard scholars debate some of these things. But here's the, the, the broad flyover important point, is that of this tiny percentage of variations where scholars aren't exactly sure what the original text was saying, not one of those calls into question any cardinal Christian doctrine. You have the gospel even outside of this. So in my view, if somebody's going to reject Christianity because of this, uh, these variations, there's probably something else going on there. And so th- th- this, obviously, I get excited about this stuff. This is a, a topic that I dug really deep into, and uh, I'm certainly not a scholar, but I found it really fascinating to learn a lot of this stuff, because if you would have asked me before, uh, you know, I had my faith crisis, why do you believe that we have an accurate copy? I would have just said some spiritual answer, like, well, I'm sure that, you know, that it that it just is, or that God made sure it was that way. And that's true, too. But it's nice to know you can actually look into the evidence for it and, and know that that's actually true. Amen. Yeah. So the spiritual answer um, is, I like how you said that's true, too, because it is a good answer that uh, the same Holy Spirit who inspired the text is able to preserve it. Um, but in God's preservation, whether it be the preservation of saints, uh, of our souls, our faith, that Christ is the author and the finisher, uh, this idea that it's not just us clinging to Christ, but ultimately he holds us fast. Uh, so we're not just persevering, but he's preserving. So in, in the issue of individual people and our salvation, God preserves, but he has means by which he does so. So, right. so the idea that God preserves, it's, it's perfectly acceptable. And, and I would say it, it's even... Uh, even commendable for us to seek these things out. It's the glory of kings to search out a matter. Um, there's God puts mysteries in the universe for us to explore, for us to discover. And so uh, wisdom draws out these things. And so for us to say, okay, so God preserves his people. Great. How? <laughs> you know, and to dive into the scripture and, and to see, oh, he preserves his people through the church. He preserves his people by the spirit. Uh, he sets the spirit as a seal guaranteeing that which is to come that cries out and bears witness within us, Abba father. And, uh, he preserves his people, um, by, you know, the spirit of God, the, the saints of God, the people of God, and by the word, by the word of God, illuminating these things to us. And so for us to do the same with the scripture and say, um, God preserves his word. That's great. And that's a good answer, but how? And for us to to delve into uh, how God over the centuries and millennia has preserved his word, I think is um, absolutely commendable. And and it's also just inspires more awe and more worship, I think, in our hearts towards uh, this this God. Um, Real quick, I wanted to read a paragraph just since we're on the topic of of the credibility of the scripture. How do we know that the Bible is, in fact, the word of God? This is from um, the the Baptist Confession of Faith. So the classic Joel, I got to got to throw it in there. But this is the 1689 uh, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. The first chapters of the Holy Scriptures. Paragraph five says this. um, And this is really more of the spiritual 
answer. And so what Alicia has done is she's shown us uh, some of the, the technical and practical side of how, how God carries this out. Uh, but it says this, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine and the majesty of the style um, that uh, <laughs> some people would use this to say uh, that they would point towards the King James. And to be fair to that group, um, that would be the, the Texas Receptus group. And so it's not only the King James, the Geneva Bible. They would, it's basically the received text. And they would look at that style, the writing, the majesty of the style. But I would argue that um, being adhering to the 1689 doesn't require you to be uh, adopt the TR position. The majesty of the scripture, regardless of what translation you're using, it has a distinct majesty in it. There's an efficacy of the doctrine. The doctrine makes sense. It's logical. 66 books of the Bible written by 40 different human authors over the course of 1500 years. And there's a cohesive pattern um, that, that you don't just see a bunch of guys contradicting one another. So the, the doctrines that, that are logical and efficacious, the majesty of the style, it goes on and says, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, the entire perfections thereof, are arguments whereby it doth, <laughs> there's the old language, not it does, it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet not standing. Now, now here's, this is really important. All these ways, all these ways we see that it is the word of God, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And so all of these things, this is how God preserves his word. This is how the scripture was written. This is how we know it's reliable and true. And yet, at the end of the day, it's exactly what you said, Elisa, that um, the person who's making this objection, at the end of the day, their, their heart is hardened. There's usually, usually. Now, now it is, it is possible because Jesus is merciful and kind. So the, the, the bruised reed, he doesn't just walk up and kick it and break it in half. And the, the smoldering wick, he doesn't spit on it and snuff it out. Um, he's a merciful priest. And there are weak Christians. There's a difference between a false convert and a weak convert. And there are weak converts that they need to hear uh, the practical, logical manner in which God has preserved his word and has, and, and has kept it so that, that it is reliable and trustworthy. And that's a weak Christian. But there are some who would bring this objection. The weak Christian is going to be a question, a genuine question. There are some people, they ask the question, but it's not a question. It's a statement. It's an accusation. It's, it's, it's an it's a objection guised as a question. And for that person, at the end of the day, one of the reasons they have the question to begin with is because, yeah, there's some practical information that we could enlighten them with. But at the end of the day, they don't have the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in their hearts. Um, but for the Christian, the weak convert, they do. So they already have the Holy Spirit bearing witness in their hearts. And for them to hear some of these details that Elisa just shared with us, all of a sudden the spirit of God within them is just going to cry out. Yes, yes. And affirm that truth um, and be greatly consoled and encouraged. OK, so that said, any other thoughts on this first one before we move well, on yeah, to the I next objection? Even, yeah, I might just even add to that, too, because I, I think that in the culture that we live in, 
it, I don't even know if it would, if I would say it would be a weak Christian asking those questions. I mean, it definitely could be. But, you know, if you look at Mormonism, they almost have a similar uh, thing. They'll say the burning in the bosom. Do you feel that burning in the bosom? And I think that sometimes people can be confused. But I, I think the Holy Spirit uses some of the more, uh, you know, just the evidence in the real world to to actually do that work of confirming it to our hearts. And I think that um, it's something that a lot of Christians go through a process of going, why do I believe this? And I think that it, it can be a very healthy question to ask. And also just for skeptical friends that come and say, well, you know, hey, the Mormon says they have a burning in the bosom and you say the Holy Spirit's confirming it to you. But what, what is there in reality that I can look to and think about that that will con, you know confirm this to me, too? So it's just it's neat to know that we have that available and the Holy Spirit does use that kind of information in people's lives at various points of their of their journey. I agree. Yeah. And I, I like R.C. Sproul. He was an uh, evidential or like cl- classical apologist and, yeah. and less of the presuppositional. I, I Now, I would be in the presuppositional camp uh, as a yeah. confession. I got to be honest about that. But um, I greatly appreciate R.C. Sproul and and he would make many. He would provide a, a lot of the same information that you've provided. And you're right. It is the Holy Spirit works um, with, with nature as well as with scripture, um, illuminating these things to us. It's a great comfort and a great consolation. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And one other thing that I think Sproul would add is uh, a lot of times he would, you know, work to, um, he would, he would work from Christ to the scripture. So he would start with Christ first and he would, he would yeah. talk about, you know, there's more evidence and more writing, more, all these things for, uh, Jesus Christ than Caesar Augustus or any, any other historical figure, you know, and everybody, nobody has any problem with Plato. Oh yeah, of course, Plato, he was a philosopher, you know, Socrates, and we don't have nearly as many manuscripts and evidence of, of these characters as we do the God man, Christ Jesus. And there's a lot of people today professing Christians and some of them may be Christians and some of them may not, but who would say, yeah, Jesus, I love Jesus. And okay, but what does Jesus say about the Bible? You know, so working from Christ first, uh, and then, and then what does Jesus say about the old Testament, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, every jot and tittle. And then, and then Jesus is the same one. So it's his authority confirming the old Testament and then his authority commissioning the apostles for the writing of the new Testament. And so even the scripture, we can look to Jesus as, you know, the cornerstone mm-hmm. and, um, and, and to write off, there's just, there really is no logical, no fair way of, of writing off Jesus Christ. You have to do something with this, with this yeah. man, Christ Jesus. You either love him or hate him, you bless him or curse him, but you got to do something with Jesus. He's not a fairy tale. And I love that you brought up the presuppositional versus the evidential approach, because when I was in a faith crisis of my own, um, I didn't even know what presuppositionalism was. So it was more like I went more into the evidential route. I would consider myself to be an evidentialist. But at the same time, I think there's such value in allowing for both. I, I, I There's so much like I've heard debates and I'm listening to the presuppositionalism I'm going, yes. And then I listen to the evidence. I'm, yes. And I think that there's great value and God uses all of it. And so, um, yeah, so there's great. I hate when people pit them against each other as if you have to, you know, pick one and be in like, you know, fight against the other. I don't think you have to fight against it. It's um, God God has many ways. 
I, amen. If you ever get the chance, I would encourage you. Um, John Frame, I, I, I really like uh, he, you know, he says, well, isn't this circular logic? Because that's the, you know, one of the big pushbacks against presuppositionalism. Isn't this circular logic, right? The Bible is the Bible because the Bible says it's the Bible. And, uh, you know, the word of God says it's the word of God. And he would say, yeah, um, but that is the number one reason because the Bible is self-attesting. That is the reason. And it is circular logic. And he said, and so let's just take a really big circle. And he argues in his book, Apologetics, and, and he makes the evidential arguments and saying it's completely proper and completely appropriate. Because sometimes you can you can be on the presuppositional side and you can say, look, um, what people are trying to do ultimately is they're trying to put God as the defendant um, and themselves in the seat of the judge. And we should never let that happen. And and I understand that. And I agree with that. I do agree with that position. Greg Bonson argued for, uh, against that. And at the end of the day, no, we're, we're, we don't get to judge God. Um, but I, but I think that, that there is something to making a defense, and, and Bonson would, of course, um, adhere to that. And so making a defense, always be prepared in season, out of season, to, to give an answer for the hope that you have. And to say the Bible is the word of God precisely because it says it's the word of God. And, and then you just start taking them on this big circle, and, and you're resting it ultimately on, on the authority of the, of the word of God. But you're also giving all the practical, evidential, circumstantial uh, evidence as well. And I think really the big question, because there's some presuppositional guys who feel like they can't ever appeal to logic or, or practical mm-hmm. or evidence. Um, I think what makes, if you are in the presuppositional camp, I think ultimately the question is, is not uh, whether or not you can use evidential arguments. I think the question is simply... Um, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Um, and so, so is it, is it first the word of God because God says it's the word of God and, or, or is it first the word of God because of these, these practical reasons? And, and now I can, and it's the chicken or the egg. And, and that is certainly a debate. Um, but I think that both are really helpful. And so, so even as a presuppositionalist, I often find myself giving, um, practical evidence. And I don't think that that's, um, I personally strongly would disagree with that being a contradiction to the presuppositional uh, position. So anyways, uh, any other thoughts or do you want to go ahead and and jump into the next objection? Well, let's let's jump into the next one, because I think that one of the things uh, you definitely hear from skeptics uh, and even sadly, even in the people who would identify themselves as Christians. Uh, of course, I mentioned that my book is about progressive Christianity. So in a lot of cases, not all uh, progressive Christians have sort of denied the resurrection of Jesus, at least as it being a physical resurrection. In the progressive world, it's like, well, whether or not he was really raised physically doesn't really matter. And then, of course, skeptics are going to say there's no evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, one of the things that really was so just exciting for me to learn was that there is a, actually a lot of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, I I argue, and I think this, I think this is true. I'm not saying you can prove the resurrection outside of the Bible, but even if you never opened a Bible in your life, there would be enough historical evidence from non-Christian sources within 150 years of Jesus' life to to go to get to that conclusion, because even secular um, scholars will admit that the earliest followers of Jesus had an experience in which they believed they had seen the risen Christ, and then they were willing to go to their deaths and be willing, and they were willing to be tortured and and um, beaten, holding that that belief was true. and And it's really interesting when you ask skeptics, "What do you what do you make of that?" If if he wasn't really resurrected, what's the answer? And they come up with a bunch of things that don't really work. But 
the good news is there actually is quite a bit of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And so um, there's a scholar, a historian, Gary Habermas, and he collected over 1,400 of the most critical scholarly works on the resurrection between 1975 and 2003. Now, this spanned the gamut of the most conservative scholars to the most uh, liberal to even atheist and, you know, hostile biblical scholars to, to the resurrection. And he discovered that there were certain facts that virtually every scholar agreed upon. And so he lays these out. And so four, four of those facts would be, number one, virtually every scholar agrees that Jesus, well, first of all, existed. Uh, you know, you're always going to have your outliers on the fringe, but that Jesus existed and, and was uh, crucified uh, in the Roman Empire. So he died by Roman crucifixion. So that's the first fact that virtually every scholar agrees on. Uh, the second fact that virtually every scholar agrees on is that Jesus' disciples believed he rose from the dead and appeared to them and that they were willing to suffer and die for those beliefs. And then there's a couple more facts they all agree on, and that's that Paul, who went from being not just skeptical, but an actual persecutor of the church, you know, breathing threats and murder against Christians, instantly flipped uh, after having an experience uh, that he believed was the risen Jesus. Now, I'm wording that the way the skeptical scholars would word it. We, of course, know that Paul did see the risen Jesus, but the skeptic might say that he believed he'd seen the risen Jesus. But the point is that his life flipped on a dime from that one experience. He went from literally bringing Christians to their deaths with Stephen the martyr, his cloaks being put at Paul's feet, to uh, becoming like one of the greatest evangelists of all time and writing a good chunk of our New Testament. And then the fourth fact that virtually all scholars agree on is that Jesus' brother James was, was skeptical. The Bible talks about Jesus' own brothers didn't even believe in him. And he was suddenly converted after he believed he'd saw the, seen the risen Jesus. And Paul writes about James's eyewitness account in 1 Corinthians 15, where he lists out all these eyewitnesses. Paul lists 500 other eyewitnesses that, by the way, would have, most of them at least, would have been alive during the time that Paul wrote about them. And if that wasn't true, Paul wouldn't have written that because they all could have been like, wait a second, you're saying I saw something I didn't see, but nobody ever, ever did anything like that. And then there's, there's one more fact that fewer scholars believe, but still about, you're about 75% of scholars believe that Jesus' tomb was found empty. And so the thing I just love to ask people is given all those facts, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. His disciples believed they'd seen the risen Jesus and were willing to be, to suffer and die for that belief. We've got Paul, the skeptic flipping on a dime and James flipping on a dime who was skeptical. I mean, this was Jesus' brother, right? Like your little brothers, the, the, the big brothers, the Messiah. I mean, that's, that's a hard sell. But he, but he becomes the leader of the church in Rome, as we know. So so there's all these facts. And so the thing I just like to ask people is, how do you explain those facts? And it's interesting just to watch people kind of think about that. Um, and so I, I have another uh, re, uh, blog post where I list some quotes from some different scholars. So there's an atheist, Gerd Ludemann, a German New Testament scholar. And he wrote that it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and his disciple, Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Now, this is not a guy that believes that the New Testament is even historically reliable, but he's saying this is a fact. Um, of course, Bart Ehrman, we mentioned as the, the skeptical scholar that grew up as a Christian, walked away from his faith, and, and he wrote this. He said, historians have no difficulty speaking about the belief 
in the resurrection of Jesus since this is a matter of public record. It is a historical fact that some of Jesus' followers came to believe that he had been raised from the dead soon after his execution. Um, and then he wrote in a blog post, I pulled this from one of his blog posts, he said, the most important thing to stress is that there are two historical realities that simply cannot be denied. The followers of Jesus did claim that he came back to life. And if they had not claimed that, we would not have Christianity. And, uh, and then, of course, N.T. Wright, there's a famous quote from him where he says, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Because, of course, we know there were other uh, people claiming to be the Jewish Messiah that were killed. And, and that those stories just faded out. The only thing that explains Christianity getting off the ground is that Jesus actually was resurrected from the dead. And so uh, those are just sort of some of what Gary Habermas refers to as the minimal facts. Those are the minimal facts, just the most basic things that all scholars agree on. And the question for everyone listening is, how do you explain those facts? Because there's different ways people will try to, but the, but it's a lot more plausible that the best explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Mm, that's really good. I really appreciate that. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna let your comments and uh, and everything you, you've contributed right there lie. I really don't have anything to add. So let's go ahead and jump into the third objection, if you're ready. Okay. Now the third one is, and we hear this a lot from skeptics, and that's the idea that science has somehow disproved God. Um, we this this is something that, gosh, there's so many debates about. There have been tons of books written. But the thing I think where I just like to bust it down to its bare bones is that by nature, first of all, if you, even if you ask what is science, people are going to give you a hundred different definitions. Yeah, I was going to ask, are we talking about science or the science? Right. Like, cause, right. cause we could be talking about like mathematical <laughs> the science. science, the science. Yeah. Because hashtag science, right? That's the right. reason it yeah. gives writing. But so if we're talking about the natural sciences or, you know, by definition, that's trying to find the causes of things. And so, uh, you know, I think that's probably the broadest definition of what science is. And so scientists, just by definition, what they're doing is they're studying the material world. Right. So they're, they're studying this one thing, but God is actually not made of matter. He's not material. So whatever they're studying, just by its very nature, is not going to be investigating the question of God. They're going to be studying the natural world. And so, and so what, what is so interesting about the way so many scientists go about saying that they've disproved God is they'll say something like, I've heard, I've heard this, like all truth can be discovered by science or, you know, the only truth we can know comes from science. But think about that statement. All truth comes from science. Just take that statement. That is a statement that is philosophical. It's not scientific. Mm -hmm. You can't test that in a lab. So you have to have philosophical presuppositions basically undergirding how you're doing the science. And so uh, it, even for a scientist to say God does not exist, that's not a statement of science. It's a philosophical statement that can't be proven in a lab. They can't test it. So in order for scientists to assert that God doesn't exist, they have to filter 
their findings through the lens of materialism, which, you know, I guess a, a broad definition of materialism is it's the philosophical belief that matter is the fundamental substance in nature, that all phenomena are a result of material interactions. And so it excludes just by nature the possibility of anything uh, supernatural. And there's a really interesting quote from uh, one of the world's leaders in evolutionary biology. This is a Harvard professor. His name's Richard Lewontin. And he actually admitted that scientists are committed to the philosophy of materialism. And so the reason I'm harping on this is because when they're studying the material world, every scientist, in order to analyze the evidence, they have to use philosophy. So, so this is why people like Frank Turek will say, science doesn't say anything, scientists do. You can have scientists that all have the same data, but they differ and disagree on what the conclusion is because they're analyzing and they have to use philosophy to do that. So you can't just, there's, there's not anything in the material world where you just look at it and everybody knows the conclusion, maybe mathematics or something like that. But here's what Richard Lewontin said. He said, and he's talking about scientists, he said, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. In spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. And then he goes on to say that... Um, uh, they, 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 for them, materialism is absolute because they can't allow a divine foot in the door. They realize if they go outside of that materialism, they're making room for God. So in essence, they're not following the evidence everywhere it goes. In fact, Berkeley philosophy professor John Searle famously compared this to a religion. He said materialism is the religion of our time. Like more traditional religions, it's accepted without question and provides the framework within which other questions can be posed, addressed, and answered. And so I think it's so interesting to, to realize that when scientists are studying the natural world, they definitely have a presupposition that they're coming to the science and they're analyzing it through that filter of materialism. But um, there's a great illustration from Frank Turek's book, Stealing from God. And, he's, and I think this will kind of bring this home for everybody. He says, to say that a scientist can disprove the existence of God is like saying a mechanic can disprove the existence of Henry Ford. It doesn't follow. A mechanic's job isn't to discover who made the car. It's to figure out how the car works. And so I think that's a really good analogy to help us kind of process. Uh, you have to take a philosophical leap to say that science has disproved God. Yeah, I completely. That was really, really great, Elisa. Thank you. I completely agree. And, I, you know, so part of what we're talking at this point is, you know, in talking about creation, uh, we're talking about natural revelation. And so for our listeners, um, if you're not familiar with these terms, I think they're helpful categories. There's special revelation and natural revelation. Special revelation uh, would be, well, first and foremost, we, we have the Bible, both the Old and New Testament. Um, but but it's more than that. We have uh, prophecy. Uh, we have uh, visions, dreams, and I'm not saying that these things continue today. I would be in the cessationist camp, um, but that's where we got the Bible. <laughs> we got the Bible, the Old Testament from prophets and dreams and visions and the Lord speaking. Um, and so uh, all that would fall into the special revelation camp. So even prophecies that were not inscripturated, they were not written down like in the early church. Um, you know, Philip had four daughters and they prophesied. I, I don't we don't have a recording of any of those prophecies from Philip's four daughters, um, but we know that they did. And if it was true prophecy, which 
it's, that seems to be what the Bible says, then that was special revelation. So special revelation is, is God's revelation through prophecy, through dreams, through visions, um, and of course, scripture. And the chief is actually not scripture. The chief of special revelation is Christ. Uh, Hebrews 1 says, um, long ago, God spoke to our fathers in many ways. And at many times, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He is the exact imprint of the father's nature um, and the radiance of the glory of God. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is the final revelation and he is the pinnacle of special revelation. Natural revelation, however, we see multiple places in the scripture. I think Psalm 8 um, no, I think it's actually Psalm 16 uh, would be an example of, of um, David, the psalmist, saying that the skies proclaim, the skies are screaming and preaching um, the glory of God. And so we see all throughout the scripture, but perhaps the most memorable and iconic portion of scripture that speaks of natural revelation, how God, how God is revealing something about himself by what he has made would be Romans one. So Romans one, uh, starting verse 18, it says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the truth is there, but they're suppressing it. Uh, Doug Wilson uses this illustration. He says, uh, unbelievers are like, uh, like people in a pool trying to hold a beach ball under the water. And our job as Christians is to poke their arms, maybe tickle them a little bit and say, what do you got there? What do you got there? Um, so for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely, now this is key, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So in these material things, there is something about God that can be seen. Um, and then it, it concludes verse 20 by saying, so that they are without an apologia, without um, an apologetic without an excuse, an argument. And so at the end of the day, um, it's important for us to recognize that the unbeliever, God forbid, if he does not save them and judgment has come and they're in hell, we should not think, oh, this poor person that, that just their, their, their greatest, their, their, primary problem was that they were ignorant. I think a lot of times Christians, because we want to be sympathetic, we want to be compassionate, which are all good godly traits. However, I think sometimes we're tempted to, to make excuses for the unbeliever. And we, and we think in a nutshell, I we, we do this. We say they're rebelling against God and, and certainly they're doing things that are sinful, but they're, re they're rebelling against God because they're ignorant of God. So we think that rebellion stems from ignorance. But what Romans 1 tells us is that ignorance stems from rebellion. So, so it's not first and foremost a matter of the intellect. Um, it's first and foremost a matter of the will. Because people rebel against God, because they can't let the divine foot in the door, like Elisa just said, uh, they, because they, every man does have an allegiance, because, we should say it like this, because neutrality is a myth. There is no neutrality. Um, math, it's like, well, math is neutral, two plus two. Um, and all of a sudden... Wouldn't you know it? We have people saying, well, maybe two plus two isn't four. M math is whiteness. Math, math is uh, white supremacy. It's oppressive, you know? And so um, even those things that we thought were new, and here's the thing, that all truth is God's truth. But what we're talking about is we're not just talking about the matter or the principle, but we're talking about people discerning, people interpreting, people observing th this matter. And, and those people have an allegiance. So the scientist have an allegiance. Um, so even when, when, when 
you know, COVID happened. And all, I remember all the way back in March, I was really, 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 you know, like, whoa, let's slow down before we shut down, you know, the entire economy and every church in America. And all, you know, and I remember arguing with my elders and back and forth. And I was like, okay, you know, they're like, Joel, don't, don't politicize everything. And I said, I, I don't want to politicize everything, but I think we're being, um, we're being naive if we don't recognize that everything is being politicized for us. Mm. So, so we don't need to politicize everything, but we're naive if we think that everything's not being politicized by someone and we need to be discerning enough to say, okay, data doesn't have an allegiance, but where does data come from? Researchers collecting data. And then we have the media presenting data. So we have godless Yale and the godless New York times working in concert. And we say that there's, there's no moral agenda there. There's, there's no, that's, that's just, we, we must be innocent as doves. But we also need to be as cunning, as discerning as serpents. So Christians, we can't, we can, we need to be childlike, another sprawl thing, but we cannot be childish. We cannot be uh, foolish. And so uh, with this matter, what the last thing that I was going to say with Romans one is um, it says for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. And, and that word perceived, it doesn't just mean that, that these attributes of God have been revealed, but But what Romans 1 says is that all people, not just believers, but all people through natural revelation have perceived. So it's not just God manifested it, um, but but the retina caught it. It it landed. It was perceived. It was seen by not just believers, but also unbelievers. But what was seen? Uh, Every single aspect about the Trinity? No. Um, The gospel of Jesus Christ? No. Uh, you, you, You want the gospel? You need special revelation for that. Natural revelation is only sufficient for one thing, which is ultimately to condemn. What the, the, Paul says, namely, or, or that language means specifically, particularly what attributes of God? His eternal power and divine nature. Not his mercy. Not his son, Christ Jesus. Um, what's been seen is that there is a God. He exists. He is eternal. He is the creator. He's divine. He is powerful. And by way of implication, he is worthy of our worship. Um, that is all seen, but all of that is only sufficient. These attributes of God, that knowledge of the Holy one, all that is capable of doing at the end of the day is precisely what Romans one says, stripping every man of any excuse taking away all. So it's only really sufficient to condemn us before a holy God. We need the special revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ found in the scripture um, in order to ultimately uh, for redemption, for salvation. So all that being said, my my point is just to say that um, as we look at creation, it does say something about God, but the problem is that every man has an allegiance. So we're not always willing to admit what it says. Mm -hmm. And then also, I think the other thing with natural revelation, part of the reason, this is my theory, but part of the reason I think that, that, creation itself does not testify to more of God is because even creation. So not just the creature, humankind being fallen and therefore um, fallible in the way we, we observe and interpret matter, but also creation itself is under the curse. So there are certain things about the natural world. We have to remember nature reveals something about God. However, even nature is fallen. So there are certain things like death, for instance, that don't actually speak to who God is because no, that's not what he made. That's what we introduced into his creation by our sin. And so we have to, we have to say natural revelation is a real theological category. It is absolutely sufficient to condemn uh, every man, woman, and child apart from the grace uh, that is found only in Jesus Christ. 
Um, but we can't go too far with natural revelation. I think sometimes some guys will say, you know, from natural revelation, everybody knows, you know, uh, this doctrine and that doctrine. So, uh, Paul says, namely, his divine nature and eternal power. Uh, it's a short list, but it says something. And um, yeah, so, right. It, it, that'd be tough. So, all right. Uh, any other thoughts that you would add, like to add to that? No, I, that was a very good breakdown. I, Romans 1 is one of my... Um, favorite. Of course, I hate referring to any chapter of the Bible as a favorite over another yeah, one, but yeah. I just think it speaks so, um, it, it, you, you mentioned hell and how people would be like, well, how could God, you know, send people to hell because they've never heard the gospel. And, and you make such a good point. And I always go to Romans one with that too, because people don't, well, I always like to ask people, first of all, put aside whatever you think hell is just, you know, put that aside. Why would you want to be with God for all eternity, under his rule and reign, submitted to his ways, if you don't even like him now. Right. And I think, right. you know, we, we look at Romans 1, and, and there, like you said, everybody has that, that access to a certain degree of knowledge that God exists and even know things about him. And like you mentioned, people reject that. And that's, and that is where, you know, it is sufficient to condemn in that sense. And so there really isn't anyone ever going to hell just out of pure ignorance, because everybody right. has a chance to respond to that natural revelation. So I thought that was a really good breakdown. Thanks. Thanks so much. All right. So that was our third objection. So real, can we do a recap real quick? The first one was... First one was, uh, have the new, well, I guess that we could say, have the New Testament documents been corrupted? Like, do we have a corrupted copy of gotcha. the text? And then the second, second one was resurrection. Resurrection evidence. Is there re evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? And then has science disproved God? Has and, science and disproved so, God? That was the third. Yeah. All right. Do you got two more for us? Can we do yeah. five? So, okay, so great. The fourth would be, um, this is a big one. And it's hard to do this on a quick flyover. So I would just, you know, recommend that people dig deeper on this. There have been books written. There's Paul Copans has got a moral monster. There's uh, lots of uh, Peter Williams is a great resource on this. He has a couple of uh, lectures on YouTube about this. Uh, but the general story about slavery in the Bible is one thing we have to understand is that the Bible, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew mostly. And we it's translated into english and then we as americans when we hear the word slave or slavery the first thing that comes to our mind is the the chattel slavery in the antebellum south right this is this is our context for slavery but what we don't understand is that the word that's translated from hebrew into english is the hebrew word abed i actually watched a video from the translation committee for the esv bible having a discussion about whether or not they should change the English translation from slave to servant. Because what the Old Testament is talking about, the, the system that God instituted, is nothing like what we Americans think of when we think of slavery, because we have a different context within which we experienced slavery. So I think that's the first thing I would say. And so the word abed in, in Hebrew doesn't carry the same negative connotation it does in our modern context. So in ancient Israel, this was a type of servanthood. It was voluntary. So it wasn't race-based. It wasn't based on uh, being forced to do something. It was, it was a voluntary system that if a destitute person, maybe they owed a, a family some, you know, they owed them and they were in debt to this family. 
um, they could go live with that family. They could be given food, shelter. They had legal rights. Um, they had protection from physical mistreatment. And even if their debt wasn't paid off after seven years, they were commanded to let them go. And they were given uh, generous gifts like flocks and grain and wine. And so uh, some cases there were where the Israelites kept servants from surrounding nations, maybe conquered foes. And but but those they were commanded to treat humanely, and they were also protected from mistreatment under biblical law. The, the thing we need to bear in mind is that the type of slavery we we had in the United States would have been punishable by death by Old Testament law, because to kidnap someone or human trafficking, we might call it, this was punishable by death. So so that was the Old Testament system that God uh, basically gave to Israel. And the point of it was to keep people from from dying. You couldn't just go get a job at Starbucks back then, right? If you if your crops failed, you could die. And so this was a way for people to have kind of a plan B to get back on their feet, to work their way up and out of poverty. Uh, it, it's an example of case law. Of course, it, it was not ideal that every, people would actually become destitute. But like you mentioned, we live in a fallen world and and stuff like that happens. And so this was God's protection for people to be able to come up and out of, of, um, of destitution. Now, in the New Testament context, it was a little different. The, the slavery that was in the Roman Empire uh, was not the same animal that God instituted for Israel in the Old Testament. And different scholars will give different percentages on this. I think Paul Copan says that 85 to 90% of the Roman population were slaves. I've heard that number a little lower from other scholars, but a, a good number of the Roman Empire, the people, just the average Joe living in the Roman Empire were some type of slave. And so we have to think about it this way. First of all, there's nothing in the Bible that speaks positively of that type of slavery. In fact, Paul condemns uh, slave traders. He specifically talks about that. Um, but think about if the New Testament writers would have come out and said, okay, slavery's wrong, what's going on is wrong, all the slaves need to rebel against your masters, I mean, this would have meant mass executions, they could have been branded, but instead Paul teaches this radically subversive teaching that slaves are actually on equal terms with their masters in the eyes of God. Now, that was radically countercultural. And so that encouraged a change that began in the heart. And this is the kind of teaching that would eventually play out and inspire people like William Wilberforce and John Wesley to actually oppose modern slavery and support abolition. And so uh, I think that with a question like slavery, does the Bible support slavery? Absolutely not. Not the kind of slavery we think of in America, the kind we've experienced. Now, like I said, that word ebed could also easily be translated as servant, as some sort of a voluntary work to work your way up and out of slavery. But no Nowhere does the Bible speak positively of this. In fact, even the whole book of, of Philemon, Paul is saying, "Receive the." He sent the uh, the slave back, and he says, Re "Receive him as you receive me." I mean, this was like elevating the status of of people. So, um, yeah, I don't think it really holds water for people to just make a blanket statement that the Bible supports slavery. There's, they're not digging deep enough to understand what's really being said in there. I completely agree. I also think so part of the problem is that Christians are not well educated. So everything that you just said was really, really helpful. And a lot of Christians just aren't prepared to get that response. I think another part of it is that Christians, we're just too embarrassed of the scripture. We're too embarrassed of our God. Um, and, I, you know, I, we should have no problem passages, you know. So, so I, I think 
sometimes I, I wish that Christians would just, you know, if somebody is, is pressing, well, your God condones slavery. If you're not prepared, I would say, um, yeah, the Bible talks about slavery and it does seem as though there are forms of slavery and instances of slavery and circumstances surrounding slavery um, that are acceptable to God. And I'll do some homework. In the meantime, so what? I'm not going to apologize um, for that. And so like even, you know, so I think of, you know, Southern slavery. And so I've done some, some reading and some, some research on Southern slavery and those kinds of things. But whether it be Darby or whether it be, you know, um, Jonathan Edwards would be certainly an example that people, you know, would be quick to throw him under the bus for having slaves. But uh, one, one thing I think to keep in mind, um, certainly there were atrocious um, cruelty and uh, mistreatment of slaves in America. Uh, it was wrong uh, in, in multiple reasons. Oh, and you named a lot of them race based. Um, Exodus, I believe it's either Exodus 20 or 21, or, or it also in Leviticus, the man stealer, the King James uses the term man stealing um, and man stealing would be punishable by death. And so kidnapping. Um, however, it is important to keep in mind with the, the wokeness that, that we swim in today and that has seeped its way into the church. Um, you know, and, and the idea of, of just completely uh, demonizing whiteness and, you know, white supremacy and colonialism and imperialism and all these kinds of things. And it's really cool right now to hate America. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that um, in terms in terms of biblical terms, um, were there many white American slave owners who were not treating their slaves in a biblical manner? Absolutely. Um, and, and, and I completely agree with you that the principles in scripture are, are there. I think it was in the mind of Paul. And more importantly, I think in the mind of God, that as we lived up to the principles of scripture and Christ likeness, um, that slavery would be abolished. I thank God for William Wil Wilberforce and these kinds of things uh, the same as, you know, a lighter example than scripture, but the U S constitution, um, slavery is, is the bug, not the feature. And, and as we lived up to our ideals, these bugs were, were, were eventually worked out. That said, kidnapping, man-stealing, it is worth noting that um, many white Americans did not go to Africa and steal people. They went and bought them. They bought them from other black Africans. And, and so I just think that it's important that as we try to demonize one group of people just based on ethnicity, skin pigment, I, I think that it's worthy that from a, of, of acknowledging from a biblical perspective, um, there's something to be said for America and slavery that was race-based, slavery that would separate uh, husbands from wives and separate families, um, a slavery that was abusive. Uh, the Bible is clear about how the slaves should be treated. Uh, slavery that is is lifelong with no hope of freedom, no hope of redemption, where it's not just a debt that's being worked off. Um, all those things, the Bible has something to say about it. Uh, but there's also something to be said for if we're just going to say, well, white people are the people who own slaves and America is the nation that owns slaves and Christianity is is the, the world religion that is pro-slavery. Um, Man, you, I mean, that's just that that dog won't hunt. I mean, we can we can real quick look at, you know, at multiple other nations that have had slavery as, as long as humanity has existed. There has been slavery. Um, Chinese 
slave slavery. There, I mean, every virtually every ethnicity, every culture, every nation, um, including ironically, um, multiple African countries um, that you know the two tribes they duke it out. Mm-hmm. One tribe wins. The survivors are taken into slavery and sold to some white folk. And those white folk have scripture like Jonathan Edwards that tells them how to treat those slaves. Uh, Do I think Jonathan Edwards should have owned slaves? No. But man, (laughs) it sure is nice having the luxury of being 200 years removed and get to look back on (laughs) on the past and point out every little flaw. I I hope that our great, 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 great grandchildren will be a little bit nicer to us than we've Mm. been to our our forefathers. Um, Well, and we have to look at the trajectory too, because, you know, think about the fact that America and others actually abolished slavery. Right. I mean, that's a huge step in the right direction. Uh, you know, people people act like slavery doesn't exist in other parts of the world. It exists all over the world. Uh, I have friends who work uh, very intently on this ministry where they literally, there's a country in, in Asia where they raise money and they go buy slaves to set them free. And they set them up with like a uh, a, a small business. And that's part of what they raise the money for, but it's absolutely all over the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and yeah, I, I, I think that we have to look at the trajectory. I mean, look, look how we have righted some of our wrongs, you know, and continue to try to do that. And, uh, so yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think it's a fair, a fair assessment of certainly not a fair assessment of scripture, of God, of Christianity, and I don't think it's a fair assessment of America. Uh, America, I think, is, um, I, I think it's the best country in human, the, the best empire in human history. And uh, and I think it's precisely because of biblical principles. And, you know, even guys who weren't necessarily Christians, like John Locke, taking these principles from, from Scripture and applying them to this idea of, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's free grace makes free men. And uh, free men make free markets, and they have freedom of speech, and and uh, and it makes it makes a better a better world. And I, I hope that our nation gets back to some of that. I, Ali Bestucky recently said I uh, was talking about America last. You know, our, our current presidency is kind of this America last thing. And and I think a lot of Christians are like, yeah, that's you know, like uh, whoever would be first should be last. You know, and we'll misquote scripture. You know, and this idea of you know, well, Jesus, Philippians two. You know, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself and humbled himself to, and not realizing that that an America last policy, um, it, it hurts others. It's it's not just bad for America. It it hurts the rest of the world. And I think the big, the big reason why is because of this idea of it's not whether but which. And that's we we just I think we think naively again. It's just this this childishness where where we think well if if America doesn't do this. Uh, this is a bad thing to do, and if we don't do it, then it won't be done. It's not whether, but which. So, so there's, right, it, Chinese empire, you know, or or American. It's like somebody's going to fill that territory in Afghanistan. Somebody's going to do this. Somebody's going to do that. And so, I think at the end of the day, um, I want our nation to be strong, and I want us to go back to to these principles, and I want us to export. I want us to export an an agenda and a worldview and a culture. Uh, the problem, I think the problem is that for the last few decades, we just were not, we're exporting secularism and secularism isn't much better than Islam or, or any other secularism is likewise oppressive and, um, and, and it's not a solution. And, and, um, so we have some work to do. Um, 
but this idea of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And I think that again comes from your worldview and back to the materialism idea that, you know, you believe in a big bang theory and, you know, everything came out of nothing, you know, or, uh, then, yeah, then burn it all down and the phoenix will rise from the ashes. Um, just deconstruct everything, tear it apart, burn it all. Um, but the Christian worldview says that, you know, that uh, creation, uh, it involves care. That, that you can't just um, throw something on the wall and, and it'll all just assemble in exactly the right positions. And, you know, um, it, things have to be built and they have to be labored over and, and they're not accidental. So we can't just destroy and expect order to come from chaos. That's the worldview. And so we shouldn't be surprised when, when, when secular politics um, is, is simply following the worldview from, from their secular public school education where they were taught evolution and taught that, you know, hey, Order comes from chaos. And so let's mm-hmm. let's just have chaos in the streets and let's have chaos here and chaos there and tear down this and burn that business and do that and do this. And and good things will happen. Um, that's that's not the American experiment. That's not why this nation exists. And uh, so it doesn't mean we don't have work to do, but it's work. It's not just deconstructing everything and thinking that something magical and wonderful will appear. So any, any other thoughts that you want to add on on that fourth objection, slavery? Yeah, no, I just, yeah, man, I just think that, you know, when I think about an objection like this, that if if a person is reasonable and they learn the information, the answer's there. And I, I think that so often with, with objections like this, I've talked about doubt being sort of like there's two kinds of doubt. There's doubt, like honest doubt, seeking truthful answers, seeking the truth. And then there's what I might call dishonest doubt, which I we think we see a lot with so many of the deconstruction stories, which is someone looking for justification for the unbelief they already hold. Right. They're, they're already out the door. And so, oh, well, I can say that the Bible condones slavery, evil Bible, you know, done and done. And I think that when people have these questions, just even doing a little self-diagnosis, like, why am I asking this question? Am I asking this question because I really want to know the truth? Because ultimately it's, you know, it, I don't want to get too far on a rabbit trail here, but when we become Christians, it's, it's, it's by faith, right? We're saved by faith. And that involves trusting God. That, that involves knowing that he's good and just and holy and all the things he says he is. And if we believe that he's good and holy and just, we're not, then, then we know there's an explanation for something that seems on the surface to be confusing about his character. And I think that so many people come to the Old Testament without any trust for God's character. And, and I think that, um, you know, just kind of keeping that in mind that with some of these difficult objections, that there's really two kinds of way of going about it. You can either really want to be searching for answers or you can just be looking to justify, you know, because you've got your foot already out the door anyway. You're right. I, I like that honest doubt versus dishonest doubt. It's, a, that, it's okay to doubt. Not okay meaning that, that it's not wrong at all, but it, it's permissible um, so long as we work through our doubts um, and and go to God with our doubts, but uh, but unbelief unbelief is a sin, and uh, and I think you're right. And unbelief again, it's back to the Romans one. It it doesn't ultimately stem from ignorance; it stems uh, from rebellion. Um, it's it's a matter of the will, not just uh, information, um, but it's it's rebellion that a heart is hardened and does not desire to know God or to trust Him or to serve Him um, and obey Him and is harboring unbelief and is veiling that unbelief as this innocent, 
doubt. Well, I just, I just have doubts, you know, and who wouldn't? And, um, you know, and, and in some cases that may be, that may be genuine. Um, but in other cases, I think it's a guise. So that, that's really helpful. All right. Drum roll. <laughs> right, we're on the last one. Huh? So what, what is our fifth objection? So the fifth one is one that I was hearing a lot on social media where people would come on. When I first started my blog, people would come on my social media and say, hey, there, you know, the only place that even talks about Jesus is the Bible. There's not even any anywhere else you can find anything out about him. And this was actually something that was brought up in a class I was in, actually in a church, what I talk about in my book of this progressive Christian church, where the pastor was kind of saying, well, you know, all these Christians kind of blindly trust the Bible, but there's really not any, uh, you know, have you ever wondered? I think that was what he, that's the way he worded it. He said, have you ever wondered why there's nothing that talks about Jesus outside the Bible? And so this was kind of an important one for me to investigate. And uh, I sort of hinted at this earlier when I was talking about the resurrection evidence, but there's actually uh, 10 non-Christian sources that mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. And many of them are actually hostile to Christianity. And the reason that matters is because if there was some sort of conspiracy to, to say that Jesus didn't exist, the skeptics wouldn't be mentioning him as a real person. Like it, it obviously wasn't on their radar that they should try to make people think Jesus didn't exist. And so um, he's mentioned by Josephus, who was the Jewish uh, historian, famous Jewish historian. Uh, He was mentioned by Tacitus, uh, Pliny the Younger, Plegan, Thallus, Suetonius, Lucian, Celsus. Now, Celsus was an interesting guy because he was an actual, like, apologist against Christianity. He was trying to convince people that Christianity was false. That was his mission and his goal. And even he talks about Jesus as a real person who actually lived and existed in history. Um, and, and there's the Jewish Talmud. So, so the, the interesting one, I'll probably just, because I know we're short on time, but I'll, I'll talk to you about one. A lot of skeptics will say, well, hey, you can't use the Josephus quote because there's, there's been some additions by uh, scholars and, and scribes. And um, so the quote from Josephus, and you can look this up online, it's, on, it's free online. You can also get you know, the books that contain all of the works of Josephus. And so when, uh, and, and this is, he was born around 37 AD. So he was born just a few years after Jesus' resurrection. In his Antiquities of the Jews, he says, at this time, there was a wise man named Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And so um, there are more sort of specific, fantastical, even supernatural versions of this quote that get circulated around. And sometimes Christians erroneously will use those because it seems like Josephus is even saying Jesus is a God uh, or he was a God. And so I, I don't use that one because most scholars do agree that there were some additions from scribes in that version, but an Arabic version uh, was found, and, and virtually all scholars agree that this one is more accurate, and that's the one I quote from. Uh, but the point being that Josephus is mentioning Jesus as a real person, and he actually mentions um, the brother of Jesus, James, as well, in a different place. So even twice we have Joseph, Josephus mentioning Jesus as a real person. And um, so the, the persecution of Christians was well-documented. Jesus as a historical person is well-documented, not just by non-Christian sources, but actually hostile sources. Right. And so, um, yeah, I was delighted to learn that, that that's, it's, the Bible isn't the only place that talks about Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Yeah. That, again, there, there's, I've, I've heard it said several times, but there's more evidence uh, for Jesus of Nazareth as a, 
actual person, a historical figure, than there is Caesar Augustus, than there is Plato, Socrates, um, any other person. And we have no problem. It goes back to the whole moral issue rather than intellectual. Um, we have no problem just accepting. And when I say we, I mean virtually every single person that I've ever met, believer, unbeliever, um, accepting, oh, yeah, the, you know, the, the history of Caesar Augustus, the history of um, Beowulf, you know, the Odyssey, the Iliad, you know, all, all these different things. And, and certainly Socrates and Plato and all these philosophers. Um, and then we get to Jesus. And like, uh, are we even sure that was a real person? It's meaning that it's, it's not equal weights and measures. It's not the same scrutiny being applied across the board. No, it's, it's very clear that there is an allegiance. Um, there is an allegiance and, uh, it's, it's a supernatural issue. And at the end of the day, um, ultimately we, we, we have, we have to pray and cry out that, you know, it's not just ultimately persuading something. We want to be persuasive. We want to be compelling, in our gospel presentation and having always been prepared in season and out of season to, have, to give an answer for the hope in which you have, which is first Peter, first uh, Peter verse, I have it here, three, verse 15. Yep. And so we, we want to be prepared for all these things. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to, we have to remember that um, we're banking on a miracle. We're banking on God um, who raises the dead. And there, there goes my Calvinism. But, you know, I always tell people it's, it's not just, you know, going in a hospital and offering medicine to those who are sick and dying. And, and if they choose to take it, they'll get better. And if it, but at the end of the day, I, th- I really do think that it's, it's like going into a graveyard with people who are buried six feet under and raising the dead. That Jesus with Lazarus, this idea of resurrection life, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and... Um, I recognize there's a debate to be had there within the banner of Christian orthodoxy. But that would be my commitment. That would be my conviction. And I think that that's what God does in granting new life. I think that's what's happening in evangelism. And so at the end of the day, um, we are God's tools. Um, we're being used as uh, the human agency. Um, but at the end of the day, God has, he has to melt the heart of stone. He has to raise the dead to life. He, he Something, the will has to be overcome. And it's not just a matter of if we only had more information. And I think right now we're just, we're living in a culture beyond just Christianity. We're living in a culture where we have no lack of information. That's not our problem. It's not that we, we have so much information. The, the problem is that we're drowning information and we, and for some of us, we don't know what's true, but when you look at, and it's like, we're so polarized and we're so divided. And I think so much of that is not because uh, this group just knows emphatically that this is fake news. And this group knows that that's fake news. And no, like, why are we so polar? We're so polarized because everybody just believes what they want to be true. It's, it's a matter of the will. You want something to be true. You go into the equation with a presupposition, with a desire. You have a desire, you have a motive, you have an agenda, you have a purpose. And, um, and then, and then you, accumulate for yourself those new sources, that data, that information, that narrative. And it, it just makes me think of what Paul said, you know, that uh, in, in the last days, men will gather for themselves. They'll have itching ears and they'll mm-hmm. gather for themselves uh, false teachers, people who will tell them what they want to hear. And so I, I yeah, I, I so appreciate you coming on the show. I so appreciate you equipping our listeners with, um, with truth um, with evidence, with facts that they can use in those conversations, because it it still matters. Because I think that is part of the work of an evangelist is bringing the person, because because 
You know, the scripture says deceiving, being deceived, they deceive others. And so there's this sense of like, I'm being deceitful, but I'm being deceitful. My, my deceitfulness is stemming from the fact that I am deceived. Um, you know, even Romans one says that there's this lying and suppressing the truth and deeds of unrighteousness, but then there is a further hardening and, and being handed over to your sin to where eventually the, you are becoming progressively blind. And so there is actually a, 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 an ignorance, a blindness. The problem is that it's, it's something that was voluntary. It's something that, that was actually, you weren't born with it. Um, you were born being able to see at least some aspect of, of, of the nature of God and you chose in your rebellion, you chose this further and further progression of ignorance by lying and suppressing the truth and theref- and, and then consequently being handed over further and further to your sin by God. And so we are what we're doing by giving people answers is we're helping them see your problem is not intellectual. Um, if it were intellectual, here's an answer. Mm-hmm. And, and see, you're, and, and it, that, that didn't satisfy you, did it? Um, and now for some it will, but, but for, you know, and those are the people that God is drawing or the people who's are already are a Christian, but just needing some help and needing some answers. But for the hardened heart unbeliever, you, you give them an answer and it's not that your answer isn't logical. It's not, it's not reasonable or any of those things. It's, uh, it actually will make them angry because, because what you're doing is you're taking away their apologia, their excuse. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a merciful thing to do. That's exactly what Jesus does with the rich young ruler. He approaches him. How much, how can I be saved? Obey the commandments, which ones, you know, I, you know, this one, all those I've kept since I was a boy. And the, and the Bible says, I love this. It says uh, that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he said, go and sell everything you have. Not saying that here's the bar for all, all followers of Jesus. You have to sell everything you have. But Jesus knew his heart. He knew that greed was just one of, exactly. He knew his idol. He knew that was probably just one of many, but Jesus said, we'll start with this one. And he points on that. And, and the man, you know, the man walks away. But, but what I love is right before Jesus puts his finger on his sin, it says he looks at him and loved him. And I think that Christians, we can do that with a, with a haughty spirit. We can do it arrogantly. But I do think that there is a way by God's grace. And as we grow in Christian formation into the image of Christ and godly character, there is a way for us to, to give these answers um, in love, to look at the person who's challenging, to look at the person who's opposing and, and love them like Jesus loves the rich young ruler. And then Say, all right, if that's really your hangup, you're telling me that your problem is strictly ignorance. You don't know what to believe or you've heard this other thing. I'm going to refute it with logic, with reason, with facts, with evidence. Here it is. Here's how you can fact check it. Here's how you can look it up. Um, I'm going to do that because I love you and I want you to know. And, and, and I think what can happen is God can use that not to save them necessarily. Only the gospel saves. Um, but he can use that to help the person realize Oh, I'm not ignorant. I'm not a victim. I, I just don't like God. And I think that that, I think that's a win. I think that that is progress. You know, when you, when you walk away and, and the unbeliever says, yeah, I just, I, I don't, I hate the Christian God. Um, pray, praise God. That might be the, the only true statement that comes out of their mouth, you know? And, and I think that that is, preparing their heart, at least they're acknowledging this is the actual problem. I don't like the Christian God. And I think that that better positions, um, at the end of the day, God's sovereign, but I think it better positions a person to recognize here's the real problem. Here's what we need. And, and the last thing I always tell people is when when you're giving evidence and all these kinds of things, remember those things are incredibly helpful. Um, but it's the gospel that saves. 
And so I think sometimes, you know, you can go back and forth and have a conversation and, and sometimes it can get heated and all these kinds of things. But I think it's really helpful, maybe even on the front end or at least uh, before the conversation ends, just to say, hey, can I just share with you the gospel? This won't necessarily answer the questions you've been asking. This won't, it's not evidential necessarily. It's not this, it's not, but can I just share with you the gospel story? And I think it's just important for us as Christians to remember there's power. And the gospel, it's, it's just powerful. It is a supernatural, you can make these intellectual arguments and all these things and they're helpful and they're good and we need to do it. But there's, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. There is something supernatural that happens when, when we preach the gospel uh, of, of Christ, his incarnation, his sinless life, fulfilling all righteousness, death, not just as an example for sacrificial love, but as a substitute in our place, uh, atoning for the wrath of God against sin and his bodily resurrection on the third day, his ascension into heaven. Um, there, there's something, it's the power unto salvation. So I'll, I'll give you the final word. Uh, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with? Well, that was just, that was great. I, I think, you know, the way I see it too, I love what you said about just, you know, also ask if you can share the gospel because uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't need the evidence, you know, he, he could move someone's heart just with the gospel. So it's important to do that. And I think that the, uh, the analogy I, I think works that makes sense is that, you know, not to confuse the evidence or apologetics with the gospel, because it's not. Apologetics is not the gospel. But I've heard it said that apologetics can work, the God can use it as something that will clear obstacles that maybe somebody's got a blocked view of the cross. Like they, their, their view is blocked. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit can move that aside himself supernaturally. But like you said, there's human, human agency and he uses us to, to be able to sometimes with good arguments and good evidence to clear those obstacles so that someone can take a, a clear look at the cross. And I think a great example of this is John the Baptist. So here you have uh, probably the, the one human being in the history of the world that should have no reason to doubt. He he touched the Son of God. He baptizes Jesus. He hears the audible voice of God at Jesus' baptism and sees the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. Like that's encountering the Trinity with your senses right there. He should never have questioned whether or not Jesus was who he said he was. But when he's in jail, uh, Herod's jail cell, for some reason, whether you want to call it doubt or you want to call it uh, questioning or maybe he was panicking or whatever in his humanity, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus could have just said, you know, just believe, just have faith, John. But he, he says, go back and tell him what you've seen. And he references a prophecy about the miraculous deeds the Messiah would do. And essentially, Jesus was giving John evidence. Like, look, you know this is this is me. You know I am the one who's fulfilled these prophecies. And I love how tender Jesus was to John in that moment. And so I think that just to remember that, that Jesus has, and even in Jude, we know have mercy on those who doubt. I think Jesus is very tender toward people who have doubts. So I think we see that in the scriptures. And, um, and so if, I don't know if anybody's listening to this and you are encountering doubts, it, you know, it's okay to press into those things and God will meet you where you are. And there are answers. And if you're looking for them, you're going to find them. And they're really good answers. So, um, yeah, that's probably what I'd leave everyone with. That's great. Amen. Elisa Childers, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it was so fun. Thank you. As a special thank you for your gift of any amount, we'll be happy to send you a free digital book from our store. To access this offer, visit rightresponseministries.com offer. 
We highly recommend Pastor Joel's book, Am I Truly Saved? If you or someone you know has wrestled with doubts about the love of God, this would be a great resource. As a reminder, to get this offer, go to rightresponseministries.com offer. And thank you for your generous support. Mm-hmm.